Thanks, Whitney. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge that you have created all things, that God, you are the ultimate author, that Lord, you have a design for everything in this world. The Lord, you have a plan for everything that happens. That God, you have a plan for all of our lives. Lord, we thank you that your plan for us included us being right here, right now. God, hearing those words from your scripture, God, singing these songs in worship. Lord, we thank you that you have orchestrated all of this. Lord, we just ask that we would be willing participants in your plan. That, God, we would open ourselves up. That, God, we would be willing to listen to your voice. That, God, we'd be willing to hear your words. That, God, that we would go and move where you call us to be. Lord, we pray that this morning would be entirely about you. God, I pray personally that you would just destroy me. That, God, you would kill who I am, that God, you would get rid of anything that I'm trying to bring to this topic, to this talk, that Lord, instead we would all pray the words of Paul, that you would use this foolish preaching to save those who believe. God, to spread your gospel, the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, use this time. We pray this all according to your will. Amen. And grab a seat. Well, good morning. Welcome back, perhaps, or welcome for the first time. My name is Jacob Smith. Uh, I'm the teacher here for college at Anderson, and I had uh, a health class way back when. I took health in eighth grade was when everyone in my school had to take health class, and my health class was very, very special, partially because of my teacher. Uh, My teacher was our volleyball coach, and in order to kind of help us all generate the same mental image, um, I've asked Ryan Lindblade, uh, who is, happens to be an offensive tackle for the a team. He's going to go ahead and stand up. Okay, so just take a gander at Ryan. Okay, so he's a right tackle at a How tall are you, Ryan? 6'7", Six, seven. Six, and you weigh 300 pounds. Okay, so Ryan Lindblade, you see him? You, you want to do a spin, just like flex? or No, you don't have to. But, <laughs> so that's, that's where he is, okay? Now, my health teacher, she could totally probably just take him out, all right? Just... He would have no chance against her. If she was rushing the quarterback, Ryan would just step out of the way because she was a beast, okay, or tank, or however you want to think about it. Thank you, thank you so much, Ryan. See, now we've all got it. We've all got it in our minds. Okay, so health teacher, volleyball coach. I'm just going to call her coach. Coach could basically pulverize Ryan, okay? That's, that's who my teacher was. And she was a no-nonsense lady. That's what we loved about her. She was a straight shooter. And so we knew we were in for a treat when one day in health class— We're sitting down, bell rings. She starts it up and she says, hey, for today, I need everyone to write down one question you have about sex and then pass it to the front. We're all like, okay, right? And we, we kind of, we're in eighth grade, so we started to have those kind of like terror giggles and, <laughs> you know, and avoiding eye contact with one another as we write it all down. Uh, and as we're writing, she explains, she goes, hey, this week we are talking about sexual intercourse. And today, we will be watching a film on sexual intercourse. But before we get to it, I will be answering all of your questions on sexual intercourse. (laughs) So she brought all of the questions up to the front. She mixed them up in a bowl. Pulled out the very first question. First one. Just kicking off our big discussion. She read it aloud. What is an organism? (laughs) 
And with that incredible misspelled question, our discussion on sex began. And she went through all these different questions. She answered all these different things. And we eventually watched this movie on the miracle, the horrifying miracle of birth. And as we were watching it, we just had so many thoughts and more questions that we didn't want to write down, right? Like, why is there so much stuff? Like, what is that? The alien? And, and we're just like watching and unfold. And in our minds, we're just like, I never want to have an organism, ever, right? Like, that's, no, 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 no. And at the end of the week, man, after all that discussion, after all that talk, that's where we all kind of landed. We were all like, man, okay, like we know what's up. Like we were informed, right? We were, we were prepared to go out and make good decisions, right? Like we were supposed to go out and just make the right choices in our lives. And by golly, we wanted to. But the truth was, was that even after all of that education, we had no idea, no idea what to do with sex. No idea. Which is why I saw so many of my friends from that moment, even before that moment, well past that moment, so many of my friends messing around and sleeping around. That's why I had so many friends that fell into emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. I saw unplanned pregnancies. I saw planned abortions. I saw date rape. All before I graduated high school. And what's sad is that many of us have seen those same things. Some of us have been the initiators of sexual sins. Some of us have been the victims of those same sins. Because we don't know what to do with sex. Because we don't know what the plan is. We're not sure how it's supposed to work. Because we see the way it's playing out in the world. And I always ask myself, is that right? Is that what sex is for? Is this how the world's supposed to work? If I'm a Christian... Do I believe that God designed sex to lead to all of those issues, to cause so much destruction? Is that why God made sex? I don't think it is. I think as we read scripture, we see a very clear picture of what God designed for sex. And yet we look out at our world and we see incredible destruction because we are constantly moving away from that original design. We're deviating from that original plan. And there's untold destruction in the wake that many of us have either seen or been the victims of. So what do we do? What do we do? Because when we look out, we see confusion in the world. Sure, we see these people, we see our culture at large, and they don't know how to handle sex. But the truth is that that confusion and that chaos has now spread into the church to where you have people coming into the church who are professing belief in God, who are just as confused, who are just as mixed up, who are committing the exact same crimes. Because we're broken. So what do we do? How do we handle this situation? All semester we've been talking about culture. We've been talking about how do we fit into our culture? How do we react to our culture? We've been looking at a lot of different issues like government or technology or career, missions, all those different pieces. And we've been finding in all of those instances that there's three main pillars, three core pieces that we use in those situations. We're supposed to react to our culture using God's grace, using God's Bible, and using God's church. And we use those pieces to create something new because when we see our culture as a broken thing, we don't change it, 
by talking about it or, or analyzing it. We change our culture by creating something new, creating something fresh and attractive that someone else sees and they say, yeah, I want to be a part of that. Let me tell you, in order for us to create something new, in order for us to change our culture on sex, we've got to start by merely familiarizing ourselves with what God intended, by understanding God's original design for sex. We have to start there. Next week, we are going to be talking about all of our culture's uh, sexual destruction. We're going to be talking about those tough issues. We're going to be talking about the ways that we have deviated from God's plan. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be really, really hard next week. Let me just tell you that right now. But this morning, I'm excited because it's lighter and because there's hope. And because we look at originally God's plan, we see his design for sex, and it is beautiful. It is so beautiful. The first thing that we have to realize about his design is that sex was created as part of a whole, right? It's just one piece of a greater entity, a greater relationship. You see, our culture now, we try to push this idea. Some people will throw around the idea that sex is just an appetite that needs to be filled, Right, like, like eating or drinking. Like you, just, you have sexual desires, you have a sexual hunger, and you just fill it, and it's nothing, nothing more. It's no, not a big deal. But, but even though people are trying to say that, the fact is, is that you look at our culture at large, and they know that that's a lie. They know it. You just have to look at our love stories, and you know that no one believes that sex is just an appetite. They know it's something more. We played a game uh, called Catchphrase at our retreat where you have to make people guess a term at uh, college retreat a few weeks ago. And so you, see, you have the term in front of you, you try to throw out a bunch of other words, and the people try to guess. Okay, so we're going to play real quick, just in your minds. I'm going to throw out the hint that I threw out at college retreat, sitting at a table of like 15 college students. Think in your mind of the answer. Okay, this was my hint. Greatest love story, uh, they die at the end. Okay, thinking. Okay, you got it? All right. Now, show of hands. How many of you thought of Roman, Romeo and Juliet? Okay. Excellent. That's right. I'm not crazy because that's, that's what it was. Okay, so that's what I was trying to throw out. But let's be honest. How many of you immediately thought of The Notebook? Yeah, okay, right. <laughs> that's right. And the truth is, that was my table. As soon as I yelled those out, overwhelmingly, Notebook! Because they love this, right? This is, this is a story that everyone knows, right? This is a, a movie that has just spread. And Nicholas Sparks has launched into his career of making depressing romantic movies <laughs> ever since, right? Where there's always someone dies, always. Just count on it, right? But he's created this story, and people love it. People re- it resonates with us. And one of the things that people love is that it's this, it's this crazy, like, twisty-turny road between Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams, right? They're like, oh my gosh, like, are they going to kiss in the rain? Oh, I don't know, it's so wet. Like, oh, man. And you're just, you're so excited. And what's crazy about the story, it, what's really disturbing, I, don't, I hope I don't pop anyone's bubble, but what's disturbing about this story is that it starts off with them as teenagers. They have this summer love. He, like, hangs on the Mary, or whatever, Ferris wheel. Thank you, all the girls, right? But he hangs on the Ferris wheel. He's like, I'm not going to let go, or I'm going to let go if you don't go on a date with me. And she's like, okay, fine. And the greatest start to any relationship, right? And then they just kind of hang out, right? And, you, and then she's, he's like, if you're a bird, I'm a bird. And she's like, aw. And so they kind of get to know each other, and they, they, get to, they just connect. Until eventually they build to this moment 
where they have the audience. This is what's so insane. They have the audience cheering, hoping that two teenagers will have sex in like this old gross house, right? That's like one of the hinges of the whole movie is that they're like building up and you're like, oh, I hope, I hope they have that sex in that house, which is crazy. That's so crazy. And then they don't. And you're like, oh, shucks. And then all this time passes until you get to the next kind of big pinnacle building moment of the movie where they finally, they finally have sex in that house. But the house is so much nicer now, right? Like, it's, oh, it's so great. He refurbished it. And yet, I mean, it's an affair sex, right? She's engaged to another guy, but oh, but they finally had sex. Oh boy, right? And you're so excited and you realize when you see that, man, there's something more to sex, right? Like, it's disturbing that we wish those things upon them, but The thing about that is we see that sex is more. If sex was just an appetite, then we wouldn't care about it that much, right? Like there wouldn't be this connotation. There wouldn't be all this baggage. There wouldn't be this huge idea wrapped up in it. But our culture realizes there's something more to sex. There's something bigger. There's a bigger picture there. That's what Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians. He says, do you not know? that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? He says, never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis. He's quoting God speaking to Adam and Eve in a passage that we're going to read here in a few minutes. Where God originally created the original couple. He created the original marriage, this man and this wife. And he put him in a garden. He told him, look, you're going to go and you're going to be separated from all other people. You're going to become your own family, your own entity, and you're going to have sex. And when that happens, you will become one flesh. You are one creation. You are one body. And he's saying there's so much to that. There's so much wrapped up in that statement, in that idea that Paul echoes it because the Corinthians were saying the same stuff that we say. Sex is just an appetite. It's just a, just a thing. It's not a big deal. You can have completely, you can just have sex and not even worry. You don't have to get emotionally involved. There's a complete disconnect. That's where the Corinthians were. And Paul says, no, no, that is not true. He says there's something more to it. When we look at sex, when we look at God's design for sex, it was one thread of a great tapestry. It's one color in the painting It's one part of the whole of a marriage relationship. That's how it was designed. And that's why when we separate it from marriage, it falls apart and it creates destruction because we are separating it from four key pieces. Four key pieces that we're going to talk about this morning. When you pull sex out of marriage, you are separating it from intimacy, from commitment, from sacrifice, and from trust. And when you separate it from those pieces, sex is no longer where it belongs. And it creates destruction every single time. Because when God created marriage, when we look at Adam and Eve, we see him creating this intimate knowledge between a husband and wife, this intimacy that they experience, this knowing of one another. It's the ultimate knowledge of someone. Having sex with someone is the ultimate knowledge of that person. It's the ultimate step of intimacy in your relationship. You can't get more intimate than that. It is the expression of an intimate knowledge of that other person. 
When you're approaching marriage with someone, as I was approaching marriage with my wife, we'd gotten engaged. We were excited. We had an 11-month engagement, so we had plenty of time to think things over. And so as we were doing that, uh, there were a lot of what I like to call mental shifts that I kind of had, where I was kind of just sort of trucking along. And then all of a sudden, my mind was like, boop, oh, what about this? Like, and I realized different things. I kind of shifted mentally. One was that I realized, wow, I don't have to take you home at the end of dates anymore. Like, once we get married, we'll just live in the same place. That would be so convenient, right? Like, I'll be so excited (laughs) about that idea. I had this mental shift closer to marriage where I thought, wow, we're starting a family together. Like, that really, I just didn't even think about it. That while we're starting a family, when I talk to people about my family, it's going to be you and me. When we have a family Christmas, when we have a family Thanksgiving, it's you and me, it's Susan and Jacob. That's our family. That's what we're creating. One of the great shifts that I kind of had too is as I was approaching it completely unexpectedly, I realized, you know what? I don't just want to have sex anymore. Like there's, there's that drive within everyone. That you're like, ooh, sex. And you've got that drive and that, that desire but it wasn't, I didn't just want to have sex anymore. I wanted to have sex with my wife. I wanted to have sex with Susan. There was this shift, right? And that would make a terrible Hallmark card, right? <laughs> I don't just want to have sex. I want to have sex with you, right? <laughs> that would be terrible. But it was true. Like it was this, there was this truth to that where my, mentally I thought, wow, like that's really crazy. Just, I didn't expect to reach that point, but I was like, yeah, I, I really, I think about it in a different way because I knew that there was this level of intimacy connected to it. It's because I wanted to know my wife. I wanted to know Susan. I wanted to know her. I wanted to be intimate with her. And I knew that sex is merely an expression of that. It's a tool. It's a part of that intimacy, of that knowledge. And so I desired that. I longed for that to have that with her. That's why God told Adam and Eve. It says, or we see, step back, it says, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, to fall upon Adam. And while he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So we see God creating woman out of man, meaning that they are intrinsically connected meaning that there's this incredible level of intimacy and knowledge already before they've even met. She was, they are made of the same tissue. So then the man said, this, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Man, Adam and Eve, they experienced what we all want. What we all desperately, desperately want to experience. Whether we realize it or not, we all want to be naked and unashamed. We want to be known fully. Fully known and yet still fully loved. Completely exposed to someone. And have that person accept me and love me, and cherish me, despite all the stuff that they see. That's what we want, because that's what we were designed for. God created us in that way intentionally. That's why you look throughout Genesis, and you constantly see the hilarious biblical language, where it talks about, like, you know, Jim and, you know, Jill, or whatever, and it says, Jim, it never says, like, and Jim had sex with Jill. It says, Jim knew Jill, 
And you're like, okay, sneaky Bible, right? Like, I, I know what you mean, wink, wink, right? But it's not just there to, like, you know, be politically correct. It's there because there's this idea. God is reinforcing the idea that sex is woven together with a full knowledge of that person's thoughts and feelings and experiences. A full knowledge of that person's life. Because sex is designed to be connected to that intimate knowledge. But you take that knowledge, and then you add something even more beautiful. You then add an unconditional commitment. You add this idea that when I am with you, when I'm a husband, and you're a wife, when we get together, we commit ourselves to one another. We say, for richer or poor, better or worse, I'm committed to you and you alone. And sex is an expression of that ultimate commitment to another person. It is a piece of that incredible commitment that you make between a husband and a wife. Recently, some friends of mine, uh, they were having marital issues. They were having kind of some, some stuff kind of popped up and uh, problems that they were kind of some conflict that they had to deal with. And as they were talking it through, uh, they both kind of got really worked up and they got to this moment where they decided to take some time apart. Just one night, but they, they said, you know what? I'm going to stay here. You're going to stay there. Because right now I just can't deal with you. Right now I just, I don't want to look at you. I don't want to deal with you. And they've been married for a few months and they thought, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to handle it. And as the guy was calling me and talking with me, and as we were talking through the issue and kind of how to handle it, man, I was, there's something that just didn't sit right with me. As they were talking about that, when they were saying, you know, as I was thinking through, like, what he was telling me that had been happening. And so I talked with Susan. After my conversation with the guy, I talked with my wife. I talked to Susan. I said, hey, you know, what, what do you think about this situation? Because she's a wise, wise woman. And so I asked her. I, don't, I say that even off stage sometimes, right? But... I asked her, I said, you know, what, what do you think about this? Because something just doesn't, it's not quite sitting. And she said, you know what? She said, that's, a, there's a problem there. There's a, there's a deep-seated issue with that situation. Because she says, you know, you can't just leave. She says, you, that's how you handle conflict when you're dating. Right? You both go to your separate places. But my brilliant wife said, they're married. That means sometimes you look at the other person and you think, I don't like you very much right now. Then you go to sleep right next to him. Which then I confirmed, like, that's never happened with us, right? And she's like, oh, no, of course not. (laughs) (laughs) But there's truth. There's incredible truth in that. That when you are married, there is a commitment. That you say, you know, we're not always going to get along. I'm not always going to like you. Whew. But I'm going to sleep right next to you. I'm going to wake up next to you. I'm going to see you when I get home. I'm going to kiss you goodbye. Because there's a commitment to work through those pieces. Because you're going to work it through with somebody. Marriage is deciding, you know what? You are worth working through these pieces with. There's no one out there that you're not going to have conflict with. And my, my friend, as they were kind of talking, I gave him that advice, passed along from Susan to him. He was like, oh, snap, she's right. And so they, man, they worked on it. And they said it took about a week. So through that week, they kind of were still talking. There were still kind of issues that were rising up, but they were working through it slowly but surely. And over the course of that week, and what was awesome was that at the end of that week, I met with them. 
I was like, hey, you know, how are things going? Give me a status report. How's it all hanging? And he was like, you know what? He's like, it was really, really hard. It was really, really hard. Still looking each other in the eye and still talking about these pieces that were causing incredible conflict. He said, but you know what? At the end of that week, dude, we just had like the best sex of our whole lives. And I was like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> because it's a part of that commitment. Because it's true. Because the part of that commitment is you have the sexual expression that you share with one another. It's a beautiful thing. It's how God designed it. That's why we look throughout Scripture and we see similar circumstances. We look in 2 Samuel, we see David. All right? Now he and his wife Bathsheba, they just lost a child. They had an affair while Bathsheba was married. Bathsheba got pregnant. David murdered the, the husband so that there wouldn't be any drama. And so, no, it didn't work. So they had the baby, but then God killed the baby. God killed it. Or him. God killed him. And so in that moment, they're grieving. David had been grieving for a week, praying and fasting and hoping that the baby would be healed. But God didn't heal the baby. Took him. And so David, then, 2 Samuel 12, 24, says, Then he comforted his wife, Bathsheba, went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. We see David and Bathsheba in incredible tragedy, and yet they remain committed to one another. And part of that commitment is sex. It's beautiful. One of my other buddies uh, recently went through this horrible tragedy, lost a parent, very young age. And as his parent was kind of slowly dying over the course of a couple months, Uh, there was just immense sadness and despair. And in that moment, man, I went and saw him. I went and stayed a night with him down in Houston. We were just sitting on his porch. And we were just, I mean, we really, we just sat. In the midst of the death of his dad. And I tried to kind of ask him, like, how are things going? How are you feeling? He's like, you know, it's just rough. He's like, I don't really know what to do all this family stuff going on, all the works, and just, it's like, I don't know. So we just sat there. And then out of the blue, in the middle of our just sitting, solemn silence, he turned to me and goes, but you know what? I'm having great sex right now. <laughs> I was like, Okay. <laughs> He's married, okay, I should probably clarify that, (laughs) with his wife. And he's like, you know, he's like, it's true. He's like, I don't know why. He's like, it's just, for whatever reason, he's like, in in this time, like, it's so sad, and there's only so many conversations we can have. There's only so much we can talk about the fact that my dad is dying. And he says, and so we've reached these moments where we just, we just have sex. He's like, and it's awesome. It's like, and I feel so relieved, and it's such a comfort, and it's such an amazing moment for me. It's just because it's not just an appetite. There's something so much more. It's not just an intimate knowledge. It is a commitment. It's a comfort. It's something where you connect with that person, and you say, you know what? I'm here for you. I'm committed to you in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this pain. I'm here. I'm committed to you. Because God designed it in that way. 
because commitment by itself is just obligation. But when you take that commitment and you combine it with a knowledge, an intimate knowledge, you find incredible unity. And it is often expressed through sex. It's awesome. But it's more than just knowledge. It's more than just commitment. Instead, we also see this idea of sacrifice. We see God designing sex as a part of a continual self-sacrifice between a husband and a wife. This thing that pops up over and over and over again. And many times, sex is used as the ultimate sacrifice for another person. You have many opportunities throughout marriage to, to serve the other person either by having sex or by not having sex. Maybe by just you know, holding off. Like There are different ways to use it to serve the other person. Uh, when I was uh, very early on in marriage, uh, my wife and I, we'd been married for like a month, I think. And uh, we kind of had this stuff arise where we were not having uh, sex. And it had gone on for like a week. And I was like, oh my gosh. It was freaking me out because I was a newlywed. And that's not... Typical all the time for newlyweds, okay? Just give you a heads up. All right, but so a week off. And I was like, oh my gosh, like what's, what's going on, right? And, and I knew there were just these complications that we kind of had to take care of. And so in the middle of that, I was like, oh, what am I doing? Like, oh, I can't go back. And so I, I went to uh, my uh, mentor at the time and I asked him, I said, hey, I was like, what, what, do, you, like, what do you do? Like, how, how can I handle this well? Like, what, what do I, what's a strategy for me to use? Because man, I've, I've, I've been there. And it, it's a sweet fruit, and I don't want to give it up. Right? Like, what's, what am I going to do during this dry spell? And so my mentor, he told me, you know what? He decided to take that moment, teaching moment, and freak me out even more. And he said, well, you know what? He had just had a child. He said, well, uh, you know, so my wife, she just had a kid. And you know, Jacob, he's like, when your wife has a kid, like, you take off, like, at least, like, probably about two months. It's, like, easy. <laughs> It's like, what? <laughs> I'd never heard that before. We didn't cover that in health class. Or maybe they didn't. I just couldn't remember it because it was a traumatic memory. But I was like, <laughs> I don't, what? And I was like, what? what? And he's like, yeah. He's like, but you know what's beautiful in that moment, Jacob? It says you can, you can take that time and, and it's a gift and it's a sacrifice. So it's a moment where you serve the other person. Because yeah, it's hard. Neither of you enjoy that but you serve the other person in that moment and it turns beautiful because God designed it in that way. That's why we see Paul talking in Ephesians 5 in this passage that is very popular at weddings because it's all about husbands and wives. I've read this like 5,000 times. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Where'd that come from? Genesis 2. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church, meaning that it's a a picture of it. He says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Ephesians 5 is this idea of this big charge for marriage about being self-sacrificing, about respect and love. And he brings that up because he's telling us, look, there's this, there's this amazing picture. There's this amazing commitment within marriage, this service that happens. Because, you know, if you're intimately committed to another person, it's not going to last long if you're still focused on me. But when you enter into that relationship focused on the other person, with the idea, with the knowledge, you're going to be sacrificing of yourself regularly. That relationship flourishes and grows as you're serving one another. And many times that is expressed through sex. Sex is an intrinsic part of that sacrifice. And when you take all these pieces 
When you take this idea of an intimate knowledge, when you take this unconditional commitment, you add in this amazing self-sacrifice. When you bring all of it together, it creates something incredible. It creates amazing trust. And that trust brings forth incredible freedom. And when you separate sex from that realm, man, those things are lost. But within that marriage context, you see this ultimate, this freedom that is found through a trust between a husband and a wife. You see this ultimate sign, this almost ultimate freedom between a husband and a wife expressed through sexuality. Because when you take, again, that knowledge and that commitment, you take that sacrifice, you've got that trust, you've got that freedom, to the point where there are things that happen uh, that would really freak you out in dating that don't in marriage. Uh, one of the things happened to me recently uh, is I got home and Susan, my wife, came up to just kind of give me a hug. And uh, as she hugged me, I don't know why, uh, I coughed, right? But that's not a big deal. But then I coughed, I coughed directly into her eye, okay? <laughs> it was this beautiful moment where we reunited and hadn't seen each other in a while. And we're just like, oh, it's so great to be back. <laughs> Just, and she's like, ah, and she went and literally, literally just like put her head against the wall. I was like, oh, oh, you serious? Why did you, why did you do that? Because I coughed in her eye, right? Very justifiable. You know, and it's one of those moments that I thought, wow, this is, this is a beautiful, this is a beautiful moment. <laughs> because I thought, you know, if we'd been dating for like a few weeks or even like, I don't know, months, I would be really freaked out at this point, right? Like, I'd be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just coughed in your eye, right? But we're married. We've been married for three and a half years. We've been through all these pieces. We have a knowledge of each other. We have a commitment to one another. We've been sacrificing, serving one another. And through that, we've built up a trust. We've built up a freedom to where I can cough in her eye. <laughs> and it's okay. I know we're going to be all right. I know we're going to pull through this eye cough incident. Right? Because there's incredible freedom there's incredible just, just trust in that. When you take all those pieces together and you add in sexuality, you add in that sex that is combined with the marriage, it is good for your soul. Oh, it's so good. Which is why we see it in Scripture what Whitney read at the very beginning. What I love. If you have a Bible, I would even encourage you to just turn there right now. Look at, you look at Song of Solomon, chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, I'm going to pop it up. But it's just beautiful. It's beautiful language. And it's broken down so poetically in your scripture. That's why it's great to look at it in person. But it says, this is a man talking to his wife, Solomon talking to his bride. He says, you have captivated my heart. My sister, my bride, you have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride, how much better is your love than wine, the fragrance of your oils, than any spice? Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Solomon is talking to his bride using incredibly descriptive and poetic language. And the truth is, if you've read Song of Solomon, you know, like, I was intentional, picked this as pretty much the, this is like the least, like, whoa now, passage of the entire book, because it gets really intense. 
Very descriptive, very loving, very poetic language. But sometimes you're like, the Bible said, what? Like, you're, what? Like, it's crazy. But it's because you see this man and this woman and there's incredible trust and freedom. And it's not, there's not just that language for, the, you know, the junior high guys to like laugh at. <laughs> I'm like, oh, what? It's in there because it displays the incredible trust, the incredible freedom that is found in that marriage, in that relationship. He describes her beauty from toe to head. And he talks about her calves and her feet and her belly. He talks about her breasts. And he calls them gazelles, okay? (laughs) And let me just tell you, if you can make that leap, if you're talking to your wife and you tell her, breasts equal gazelles, there's incredible trust in that relationship, right? Like that's, there's freedom. <laughs> You're able to say that. <laughs> because there is this beautiful picture that is created. When you take all those elements, again, I can't stress it enough. When you take all of those element, elements together, when you take all those colors, all those threads, you weave them together, you find this trust, you find this freedom. And it's a beautiful picture. And that's where sex flourishes. That's where sex plays a part as a part of that whole. What's perhaps even more beautiful is how you see all these elements combine. And it's what Paul said in Ephesians 5. He says, what's so wild is that you look at a marriage, not only are there all these different pieces and so interwoven, and you're like, wow, there was an author behind that because that is incredible. He says, no, God took it a step further. Not only is marriage an amazing picture in and of itself, but he says, but it's a beautiful representation of Christ and the church. Meaning that when we look at the world, we see this brokenness, but yet we see God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. We see this God who knew us, who was so committed to us that he died for us. And through that death, through that amazing sacrifice that he made on our behalf, when we take all those elements together and I put my faith in that God who knew me and loved me and sacrificed for me, when I believe in that, when I put my faith in Christ, I find incredible freedom. I suddenly realize that sin is no longer my master. I'm no longer bound by this broken world. Instead, I'm a citizen of heaven. I have a promised salvation. I know where I'm going for all of eternity. That's how Christ and the church work. That's how marriage works. That's how sex is supposed to work. So next week, like I said, we are going to be dropping the hammer. And we're going to be talking through some really tough issues. And we're going to be covering this incredible destruction that is caused when we deviate from God's plan. So I would beg you to pray. To take this week, pray next week. Pray for yourself. Pray uh, that God would be guarding your heart, that God would reveal this truth to you. Pray for your friends. Pray for the people that you know that are victims of sexual destruction. Pray for your friends that you know are in the midst of making decisions that they will one day regret. Pray for yourself that God would protect you from the regrets you might feel right now based on decisions that have happened in the past. Take this week, please, please pray for yourself, for the people in this room, for our community, 
for our entire nation, for our church. Pray that next week would be powerful, that God would move. So as we sing just a, a, a few more worship songs, as we go before the Lord one more time, I would just, again, remind you that our God loves us. He loves you so much. And he is a God of redemption who loves to redeem, to take what is broken and make it new. So if you have regrets, if you think you are going to have some, no, God loves you in the midst of that, in the midst of that brokenness. God desires to pull you out. Take hope in that. Even next week when stuff gets tough, know that there's still hope because we see that picture of what Christ did for the church played out in marriage, played out in sex. So let's pray. Lord, God, we just, we thank you that you choose to speak to us in so many different ways. That God, that you speak to us through your scripture. That God, you speak to us through worship. God, you speak to us through your Holy Spirit just moving in our hearts and in our minds. God, you speak to us through conversations that we have with one another. God, we just are grateful that you are a God of clarity who gives us an overabundance of information. God, we just pray that we would be faithful to seek that knowledge. That God, we wouldn't grow complacent. That God, we wouldn't just take what the world tells us. That we wouldn't just take this easy knowledge that's put in front of us and just accept it as truth. God, we pray that we would continually ask the questions of, is this best? Is this how you've intended things? God, especially when it comes to sex in this world, God, we see that our culture is on a, a broken path. So Lord, help us remember your original design. God, not only for our own sake, but God, help us take that idea, that design, and spread it. God, to tell others. So again, if you would, take this moment right now. Pray for yourself right now. Pray that God would keep that design in your mind. Let, pray that God would open up conversations for you to have either with him or or with a roommate or whoever. Ask God to be preparing hearts to move powerfully next week as we address the destruction.